this week on Missions Today. The idea that missions is failing, I mean, it's, we feel that here in the West, but actually the evangelical church is really not shrinking, at least not as much as most people think. And, you know, we see the European population secularizing, but how Christian were they really? So globally, uh, the body of Christ is growing at at least twice the rate of the global population, and most people don't realize that. The church is still growing. Hi, I'm Colin Lambert, and this is Missions Today from Resource Global. What good news from our guests this week. Despite the cultural shifts and changes in America, the worldwide church is growing. That must mean that the Great Commission is still happening. But is the Great Commission as important today as it was years ago? Should the local church be focused on engaging globally or just in their own backyard? And should we individually be concerned about people who have yet to hear the gospel? Well, we'll try to answer a few of those questions this week with our guest, Steve Richardson. Steve is the president of Pioneers USA. Pioneers is one of the largest sending organizations in America with over 3,000 missionaries in the field, impacting 500 previously unreached people groups in over 95 countries. But Steve's story actually began on the mission field. Steve, welcome to Missions Today. Great to have you with us. Tell us a bit about your journey to the mission field. So at six months of age, my parents hauled me kicking and screaming onto a ship called the Oriana. And off we went from Vancouver to the wilds, to the jungles of the island of New Guinea, sunbathing on the equator just north of Australia, and ended up in a tribe called the Sawi. We were the first outsiders that they had encountered. They lived in tree houses 40 or 50 feet off the surface of the swamp. And that's where I grew up, battling pythons and almost lost my life to crocodiles in the river. And sometimes I start sharing stories, you know, if someone wants to talk to me on, a, on an airplane and they, they think I'm pulling their leg. It's like, <laughs> it's like, this can't be true. Wow, that's quite an experience. So you were, you were right in the middle of it from, from the youngest of ages. What, what was that kind of life like growing up? I can't even imagine. So, you know, I spoke their language probably better than English initially because only mom and dad spoke English. I watched battles being fought. Four villages moved in to be close to us, but they didn't like being close to each other. And I, the four people were killed in one of those battles. But then, you know, mom and dad, as they learned the language and started explaining the gospel, to their shock, the people thought Judas was the hero of the story. And they said, tell us more about Judas. And my dad said, you mean Jesus? They said, no, Judas, he sounds like one of us. And dad said, what do you mean? He said, didn't you just say he betrayed his friend to death? And dad said, yes. He said, well, that's what we do. We've been doing that for a long time. And Dad realized he had a cross-cultural communication challenge on his hands. Uh, and that led to an amazing breakthrough in answer to prayer, where Dad eventually convinced them they had to make peace. Then came another surprise. One morning, there was terrible commotion in the village of Kamur, and a father was running with his little baby boy over to the enemy village of Hainam, turned the baby boy over, and Dad said to Ari, his friend there, as he was watching what's happening, and he said, you've been telling us we have to make peace. And I don't know what it's like where you come from, but there's only one way we can make peace. That's by giving one of our own children to the enemy. Long story short, dad and mom realized as strange as this was, it's a strangely familiar concept. Two parties at war, 
one father wanting reconciliation so much that he's willing to give his only son to be the basis for peace, the peace lasting as long as that child lives, which was the case in the Sawi culture. Man, that's the gospel in a nutshell. So, so growing up, you can imagine, Colin, in that environment, I had the privilege, you know, the first 15 years of my life of having a front row seat to the power of the gospel, Romans 1.16. And so that has forever changed me. I'm, I'm not in missions simply because my parents were. And frankly, I came to my personal salvation, my personal faith in Jesus at the age of five. I remember it vividly through a supporter uh, of my parents, a rather eccentric man, a Canadian, who was rooming in my grandmother's house at the same time we were there. And he said, you know, Stephen, your parents are Christians, they're missionaries, but that's not enough. You have to have your own personal relationship with God. So that's where my personal journey of faith was really launched. You know, it's it's it could it, it could go really two ways. Your your uh, your path could actually go two ways. Being raised in that situation, you could say, "I don't want to have anything to do with this." As I get older, I want to be an accountant. Or you could be, you know, so moved and touched by the work of your parents, you could stay in it. Uh, it sounds like you stayed in it. Did you did you always have the desire to go into some kind of ministry? You know. Uh... A lot of us missionary kids, as we call them, wanted to be pilots in those days in that environment. That would have been the earlier thought. You know, I want to be one of these pilots flying these airplanes that I used to go off to boarding school in. Uh, but yeah, I, I think part of it, I, I definitely was in the latter category. And I think part of it was, it wasn't just my parents. You know, they were including us. I remember teaching Sunday school as a kid using one of those big pictorial Bible story books and explaining to the Sawi children, my peers, the, the, the realities of life in the Middle East thousands of miles away 2,000 years ago. And I, I was part of the ministry. So, yeah, and I have lots of friends, you know, who grew up in a similar environment, many of which pursued. It's almost like it's a polarizing opportunity. And, and some, some get it and, and go wholeheartedly. Others, others get it but they fill all kinds of other career paths in life which are are equally callings of god and and there's 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 a you know a percentage that don't actually get it and may may walk away from from the lord well obviously you got it and you understood the need and you engaged with it when did you all return or when did you return to the US and or to Canada wherever you went back to when did that happen and when did you actually kind of move into missions yourself after your parents' stint? Yeah, I actually, you know, depending on what you think of a missionary call, I, I came under tremendous conviction for that at a camp, an isolated camp you could only fly into on an island off Vancouver Island, when my father was speaking there when I was 10. And I remember the last night of the conference, he gave a challenge for the unfinished task and said, is there anybody else here, anybody here uh, who is sensing God, you know, speaking to you in a powerful way? And I just felt like, I stood to my feet, and I remember my dad's words, my own son has been the first to stand to his feet. Will there be any others? And I, I honestly don't know if there were any others, because I was so caught up in the sense that God had a special purpose for me in life. So we came back for 10th grade in Canada, and then we, as a family, moved down to Pasadena, California, another cross-cultural transition, for 11th and 12th grade of high school. 
My, my father, my parents were getting involved in what was called the U.S. Center for World Mission at that time. The concept of unreached people groups was being popularized by a gentleman named Dr. Ralph Winner. So I finished high school there and then went to Columbia International University in South Carolina. I used to drive my 1974 Honda Civic back and forth across the country. And just from, that, from the age of 10, I pretty much just said, Lord, I'm heading this direction. You'll have to close the doors. You know, if I'm not going, and he just kept opening door after door. That's incredible. Well, uh, tell me how you got to Pioneers. So uh, it's kind of a fun story. My dad came back from one of his speaking trips. I was a senior in high school. And he said, Steve, I found a young lady I think would be perfect for you. <laughs> and I was just like, that isn't this a brief, that premature? But he piqued my curiosity. I said, so who are you talking about? He said, I met a young lady on the East Coast in Washington, D.C. Her name is Arlene. Her parents are starting a little, little ministry in their home. And I, she's just really quality. It's a great family. So why don't you write her a letter? So after a while, I picked up my dad's Institute of Tribal People Studies stationery with all the heads, you know, hairdresses and bones through the noses. And I wrote Arlene a letter. We became pen pals, which is, you know, an early version of Facebook and started writing letters. And lo and behold, that little ministry that that Arlene's family was starting in their home was what became Pioneers. And as as we courted and eventually got married in 83, there were, probably 80, there were probably 25 or 30 people involved in Pioneers at that time. And we just sensed God wanted us to be part of the startup and help lay the foundation. So we plunged in, went off to Southeast Asia. And today we're impacting about 500 unreached people groups uh, all around the world and have about 80 nationalities in Pioneers, you know, with over 3,000 members. It's, it's been a wonderful journey, wonderful ride. That's incredible. Well, that kind of brings us to uh, your latest work. It's called, Is the Commission Still Great? Eight Myths About Missions and What They Mean for the Church. And this is uh, a really important book, I think, for today, as I'm having conversations with people about missions. I think this is something that I think is going to be very helpful for folks. There are so many myths out there or thoughts about missions that just really there may be a nugget of truth, but but it's taken so far out of context that often I think people are put off about missions when really uh, the truth of it is it, it is still impacting and changing lives all over the world. First, before we get to some of the specifics, tell me about what led you to, to do this. You know, I trace it in my own mind back to a speaking engagement I had probably 20 years ago outside Philadelphia, and I was just sharing some some things that God is doing around the world, so encouraging the advance of the gospel and of the church in nation after nation. And afterward, this elderly lady came up to me, and she literally had some tears, you know, coming down her cheeks. And she said, you know, I've been giving and praying for years, but it was just like God spoke to me in today and said, you know what, it's actually accomplishing something. And and the spirit of God is on the move, and your your faithfulness is being rewarded, even though you hadn't known it for so long. I thought to myself, you know, I'm thrilled to hear that she's encouraged, but why why did she have this impression that not much was happening? And and so that that uh, catalyzed another question in my mind. I wonder what other misperceptions uh, God's people might have that might be demotivating them to some extent, and they may not even be aware of it. So instead of collecting stamps or shells, you know, like I used to do, I started collecting misperceptions about missions. I started having conversations and asking people, I, I would normally ask not what misperceptions do you think you have, 
but what misperceptions do you think other people might have about missions, you know, and they're, they're freed? So anyway, that we, I distilled them, did a bit of an informal survey just to confirm some of my suspicions. And uh, and that, that's how this this book emerged uh, over time. Let's talk about some of those uh, myths or misperceptions. Uh, maybe one or two of the top ones that come to mind. So um, you know, one basic one is just that missions is a side salad. You know, biblically speaking, this would be the theological underpinnings. And it's interesting to me that in a fairly recent Barna survey, 51% of churchgoers here in North America don't, if you say Great Commission as a moniker for the bigger idea, they have no idea what you're talking about. And then there's another like 37%, according to that survey, that they may have a vague idea. I think I've heard that. But if you gave them a multiple choice list of references, they wouldn't know which reference you're talking about. So that's just a sampling the Great Commission was likely given to the 500 disciples that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 15 on that mountain in Galilee. It's given in all four Gospels and Acts to different people on different occasions, and it's the marching orders for the church. So the, the big idea there is that it's hidden in plain sight. You know, Jesus said in Luke, you know, how, how foolish you are and slow to believe the scriptures. It's like if it was in the Old Testament, it's certainly in the New Testament. Another one, Colin, is that Western missionaries are obsolete. And, you know, interestingly, I understand that over 90% of pastors basically feel this way. It's not really the season, the chapter of history to continue sending flesh and blood. Missions has to be done in other ways. And I'm all for all those other ways. But I really believe that biblically and even practically and strategically, we need to be continuing to send our own flesh and blood. And I, ironically, the idea that we don't need to send missionaries anymore, I think the, the underpinnings of that, the presupposition is that we've been so successful. And these missionaries have accomplished so much in so many countries that we don't need to be sending them anymore. And, and it's, it's almost counter it's counterintuitive. If we've been so successful and if missionaries and the seed of the gospel are all over the world, and yet there are, give or take, 7,000 more unreached people groups that still need churches, why would we stop doing what has been proven so biblical and so fruitful? So uh, those are a couple of them. And each one is just, to me, it's, it's really exciting to unpack and try to correct you know, some of the misperceptions. I know in some of my conversations with folks who study missiology and others who are, are practicing it on a regular basis. There has been in recent years a move, uh, which you know far more about than I do, to other parts of the world being more senders. In other words, more of other parts of the world beginning to send and engage in mission work and even maybe less of a focus on the West. Is that is that the West doing that, or is that just other countries and other nations beginning to realize they can can and should be part of this as well? I would say a few decade, decades ago, it was mostly the West catalyzing that. Today, the West is an increasingly minor player in the mix, to the glory of God. <laughs> and, uh, you know, another one of these myths is that we're, we're harming cultures. You know, this is a missions is a form of imperialism. And, you know, I, I could spend time on that. But it, really, one of the underpinnings of that idea is that missionaries are Westerners. But guess what? There are probably 20 or more 
missionaries from non-Western cultures for every Western missionary uh, today. And a lot of those are going internally, with, domestically within various countries, but multi across cultures. So yeah, today the, the name of the game, Colin, is partnership. We need to be sending the right people in the right roles. And increasingly our role is in the area of encouragement as catalysts, as connectors, resourcing from the various parts of the body of Christ. And in some cases, still as pioneers, because we can, we can have access to some places that people from other countries can't. But the bottom line is we still have a very significant role to play. And in conversation after conversation that I have with people in other countries, leader, church leaders, they want us to come, but they want us to come with a posture of humility. Uh, we talked about this a moment ago, but uh, there is often a little kernel of truth in one of these myths or misconceptions. And you were just talking about this idea that, especially today, it seems like with the way culture is is going, that uh, there's this uh, uh, myth or misperception that missionary work is all about this uh, tied to colonization or imperialization. Uh, so what is the kernel of truth that we can take? Give us an example. What's the kernel of truth and what's what's the reality of that? You know, the kernel of truth is that a lot of the history of, I mean, there are probably several kernels of truth, but one is that the history of missions in the recent last couple of centuries went hand in hand with modernity and, and globalization because the Reformation had happened. And then there was a growing realization that that the gospel is for the whole world. And so, you know, the church started growing at the same time. But ironically, in so much of history, the, the missionaries were actually opposed by the colonial powers because they wanted to keep the local populations in subjugation. And the missionaries, David Livingston and others, wanted to stop the warfare and, you know, all this. So, yeah, there's a, there's a the idea that missions is failing. I mean, it's we feel that here in the West, but actually the evangelical church is really not shrinking, at least not as much as most people think. And, you know, we see the European population secularizing, but how Christian were they really? So globally, uh, the body of Christ is growing at at least twice the rate of the global population, and most people don't realize that. There is so much news. And again, one of the reasons for this program is to get news like that out to other followers of Christ, because I think there is so little news about missions that's available to the general populace and uh, of, of evangelicals and churchgoers, and it's just so important to me to continue to reinforce what really is happening, the good news, the, the amazing things that are happening day in and day out that we just never hear about. It never makes it to any news. You really have to be looking for the news if you're wanting to find some of that. So I really appreciate your efforts uh, to, to do that and Pioneer's efforts around the world. It's it's just incredible. For someone who's listening and uh, they say, okay, well, great, it sounds like stuff's happening with missions. I, I kind of have a heart for that kind of thing. What 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 are some of those first steps for people who are interested in mission-type activity? So start praying that God will open your mind and heart and, and uh, give you relationships and give you information, but don't do it passively. Start seeking it out. And you know, frankly, Colin, this this book that I've published here, the is the commission still great? Is an effort to help give churches and individuals, rank and file people in the pews of churches across the West, in particular, the tools and some some conversation starters. So so don't be afraid to ask the questions, and and say what's really on your mind uh, with other believers and build relationships, 
and start praying the prayer of Psalm 67. Lord, bless the nations through me, and you'll be amazed what happens. I think it's it may be next to the prayer of salvation, the most powerful prayer you will ever pray. Talk for a moment about the local church. You you mentioned that in some of the some of the data, some of the research that. Uh, there are a lot of churches today that feel like maybe the time has passed for uh, the West to be engaged with missions. What would you say to a, a church pastor, maybe a senior pastor or, or a staff pastor, who's considering whether or not they should be engaged or engaged more deeply in mission activity? I would say steer away from win-lose scenarios and take in the whole picture of the Great Commission and uh that includes your Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And, and you know, I, I playfully refer to super spreader churches, and these are churches that get it. And what I found is that if, the, the, sometimes the hardest part of that equation is the global. It's, you know, it's distant. It's out of sight, out of mind, generally speaking. But if, if the leadership of the church can cultivate a global vision, the, the local vision follows. And it actually becomes healthier. And in church after church, I've observed that the golden age in the history of these churches, as people look back on it years or decades later, was when they really had a global missions vision and things were firing on all eight cylinders, so to speak. So I would say, you know, and and write it into your pastor's job description as a blessing, a paid trip overseas every year or two to engage with what God is doing around the world so that that realization can infiltrate the culture of the church as a whole. Do you feel like every church should be involved in missions beyond their local community? I actually do, because I think it's biblical. I think it's healthy for the church. I think the church will be blessed by that. And I I honestly don't think it's optional. Now, Now, what that looks like, there's lots of room for play there, you know. And so, so the church in Antioch ended up sending their two premier elders on the road. It was a big sacrifice. But uh, I, yeah, I can't presume to know what it's going to look like, you know, when it's fleshed, when the Holy Spirit uh, fleshes that out in the life of a particular congregation. Yeah, so many different uh, ways to be involved. Uh, talk for a moment about, we mentioned Pioneers, the organization that you lead. Uh, so many organizations do sending around the world and are engaged in mission activity. What would you say makes Pioneers unique? Well, every organization has its niche to play in the bigger picture. And uh, for us, it's kind of doing, I think, what Jesus called in John 4, the hard work. And that is a pioneering effort among unreached or least reached peoples around the world. And we generally define that ethno-linguistically, not always. but And so what, what we are is really, we're in answer to the question, what would it look like for 3,000 churches in the U.S.? and several thousand in other countries to partner together to see the gospel proclaimed and disciples made among least reached peoples all around the world. Pioneers is an answer to that question. We're doing it creatively. We don't dictate methodology. We're values driven. And one of those values is to partner closely with, with sending churches. So it's it's been a great blessing. It's phenomenal. We're based here in Orlando, but we have offices sending bases in 17 countries around the world. Well, it's obvious y'all are doing great work. Before I let you go, two two more questions. First of all, we have so much bad news or lack of news in the world. Uh, I talked about the fact that that there is good news happening in the field. There is There are good things that God is doing around the world. Do you have a story, maybe something you'd like to share that you've heard about recently? Well, we started by talking about New Guinea. When my parents carried me there, 
relatively few of the 1,200 or more language groups in that area of the world. About a fifth of the world's languages are there, had the gospel. Today, almost none don't. That's just in a 60-year span. Who would have thought that the Ayatollah Khomeini back in 1979 would have been God's instrument to see the Persian church, the Iranian church, become the fastest growing church in the whole world. They're growing, some say, at about 20% a year. There are six or seven Iranian-speaking churches in the city of Seoul, South Korea. And some are, some are estimating there may be a million believers now. And, and there were probably only 400 Muslim background believers in Iran at the time of the Cultural Revolution. Just, you know, they were in the hundreds. So anyway, God is on the move. The Holy Spirit is fulfilling his his promise, I will build my church. Be encouraged. Yeah, amen. Be encouraged. Finally, how should people be praying for missionaries, for the mission activity that's going on? Any suggestions as we kind of work on our prayer list today? What what should we add for you and your team? What should we add for missionaries who are who are taking these steps to engage with unreached people groups? So, you know, what's coming to my mind as you ask that is that the Apostle Paul, to my knowledge, never prayed for safety per se, but he prayed for two things. He prayed for courage to proclaim the word of God boldly and for open doors for the gospel. So I I think those are two applicable prayer requests for the global church. And I don't mean just for North Americans or Westerners. Uh, Let's pray that God will raise up Saul's turned Paul's from the Hindu world and the Buddhist world and Muslim world and other worlds to be spokespeople for the gospel today. Pray for courage and open doors for those in the field sharing their faith. You know, it's interesting. I've heard the story over and over from missionaries and Christians and countries experiencing persecution. Rarely, if ever, do they ask that we pray for their safety, as Steve mentioned, but they ask that we pray that the gospel go forth. Might we, in the comfort of our homes or the padded seats in our churches, be willing to add these folks in the field and those facing persecution to our prayer lists? I hope so. You know, it might also be a good time to mention that the International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians is coming up on the first Sunday in November. If your church doesn't know about this yet, visit persecution.com to learn more. And of course, for more information about Steve or Pioneers USA, just visit today's podcast notes. We'll have links for you right there. I'm Colin Lambert. You've been listening to Missions Today, a production of Resource Global.